Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to They Started It with Angelica Malin, the podcast that takes you on a journey from business idea to reality with a range of inspiring, dynamic CEOs and business leaders. I'm your host, best-selling author, entrepreneur, and founder of About Time magazine, Angelica Malin. And in this series, we'll be discovering what it takes to make it as an entrepreneur, from mindset to hard business lessons with some incredible, inspiring guests. Don't forget to follow me on social media, at Jelly Malin, for all the behind the scenes of making the podcast. Now, let's find out how they started it. So I'm joined this week by Nick Gold, who is MD of Speakers Corner. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's lovely to be here. So can you tell me um, a little bit about your role and kind of your day-to-day work? Yes. So my role, I suppose, over the years has become more liaising with the speakers and getting to know them really, really well. And also, obviously, making sure my team are happy. Um, so my day-to-day changes every day. I wish it was more organised, but it seems organised chaos is more like what it is. Um, I generally listen to a couple of speakers every day or meet them and have conversations with them where they're going. I check in with the team. Um, and basically just trying to build the Speakers Corner brand and also, on a wider context, um, educating our clients and the industries are wide about what we should be doing to enhance the world of speakers I've taken up over the years various positions kind of within the industry, um, including last year I was president of the International Association of Speaker Bureaus, in order to try and um, expand the industry and mature it. For me, it's just starting out and the possibilities are enormous. Mm. For those that don't know, can you tell me a little bit more about Speaker's Corner? Of course. So we are a non-exclusive speaker bureau. And what do I mean by that? It means that when you are putting on an event and you're looking for and you're looking to have the right content and you and you type into google the fact that you want a speaker to talk to you about leadership and actually 13 million people come back kind of results to say we are all great leadership speakers how do you know who that person is who the right person is for your event based on your audience based on what you're looking for and what we do as speakers corner at the non-exclusive speaker bureau is you call us and you say i've got an event next week this is the theme of the event this is the audience of the event this is the type of thing we're looking for, and we advise you as to who the best speaker might be for those event, that event based on the fact that we have around 10,000 different speakers on our database. We get to know these speakers. We really understand what they're delivering in terms of content and how they deliver it, and we can give you the right speaker so that you get you get the results you are looking for from your event. So the idea being that it's more of a bespoke experience than working with other companies? Exactly. It's, 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 we are not restricted by who the speaker you are booking. We are, we are focused solely on the fact of what you are hoping to achieve. And one of the fascinating things for us from an events perspective and from a um, conference perspective is just by asking a client the question, what do you define as success of your, of your event? Many of them have never really thought about it. I'm holding the conference because I always have that conference. We do it every year or we're just looking to bring people together. And it's great. But then... Well, then the speaker, what you're trying to get out of the speaker, you don't really know. Whereas if you turn around and saying, kind of, if it's a company, we're going through these change or this, that and the other. And this is what we want people to feel, inspire them to do or act on. It means we can start helping them select the right person to 
lead that change or lead that process. Interesting. It's also about the audience, I think. And I think sometimes we forget when we put on events that it's like I, as a company, want to put on this event. And doing festivals over the last few years, I've realised where if I start with the place of what, what does this audience want, the event is so much better and you're actually really catering and you're understanding the needs of an audience. And it, the whole project is so much more fulfilling. But it can be easy as a brand owner to just want to do something for the sake of the thing that you want to achieve. So I think, I think that's really two interesting points about that. I think, firstly... Too often where speakers get it wrong, especially if you are speaking not on behalf of your company, but as someone who's grown up there in business, is you think the speech is all about you. And therefore you stand up on stage and you tell your story and you say how amazing it was and you feel good about yourself. But then you forget that actually the audience want to know how it impacts them. So they want to know the, the lows as much as the highs because maybe then they can learn from you. So the speaker has to reinvent themselves and take away their ego, which I appreciate is hard when we're all on stage and we like the ego part of it. And turn around and say, who are my audience? And there's three audiences for any speaker. Firstly, the person who booked you, who's generally running the whole event. And actually, what's their aim is the fact that you start at one o'clock and you finish at two o'clock and you don't overrun because they've got lunch after. And actually, that's what they're looking for from you. You've then got the, the main stakeholder of the company. It might, if it's the company again, it might be the CEO, whatever it was, who are looking for you to deliver the key messages that they're looking to get out of the whole thing from maybe a strategic point of view or whatever point of view it is. And then you've got the audience. And too often, the, as you said, the audience are overlooked. And the truth is, you assume that the audience wants what you've been briefed to by the event organiser or by the CEO or whoever did the briefing call. But the audience might be there for completely different reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think, kind of, maybe we'll touch on it later, but one of the interesting things about the last, kind of, the pandemic and the move to virtual um, has been the fact that the interactions between the audience and the speaker have been closer and it become become more of a conversation so actually those speakers who are starting who started their speech by asking the question over if you've got any questions just drop them in the chat box suddenly they can adapt their speech to what the audience want as much as they've already taken into context what the event organizer or the stakeholders told them they're looking for and they can adapt their speech on the fly and deliver to everyone Mm, absolutely and I think the way to stop those speeches being flat is by bringing that audience in it's so it can feel so 2D when you're when you're doing something virtually and I think we do have to think of like new ways to keep it engaging because it it's quite a flat medium to be presenting on I agree I think kind of the days of you thinking because you're telling your story you're going to actively engage with people it's like I can tell my story but I can use that as the basis of what I'm going to give to you to you the audience and how do you want to know how can I help you learn so you can take that away and do stuff? And let's make it into a conversation. I think it's really interesting changing the framing of keynote speaking and delivering a speech to actually engaging in a conversation with the, with the people who you're in the room with. Mm, absolutely. Um, so on speaking, like I'd love to hear some of your thoughts because obviously this is your industry, but some thoughts on what makes a great speaker in your eyes? What do you look for in a, in a great keynote speaker, for example? Okay, so and I think it's like I, I was privileged. Penguin approached me of now three years ago to write a book about speaking which I did um, it's called Speaking with Confidence and one of the things that, and it started from a place over the fact that we all have this fear about speaking and the truth is in my eyes anyone can speak because as you and I are chatting now we all speak every day to each other and the fact the only difference is you're speaking up on stage so it's a confidence factor over the fact that you can stand up on stage and, and deliver that speech and move on from it being the big fear of if I'm in front of an audience I've got to do it in a particular way in a particular style very austere and actually how do I get credibility and all that sort of stuff you've been invited up on stage you can tell your story you can make your points because that's who you are so well then if you take that to the next step and say okay what's the difference between that person who's been asked to do a speech and a professional speaker 
and it, and it becomes more nuanced. The same way that, to me, when you're starting out in a career, you might understand how to do a job, and you, but as you get experience in that job, you you understand more and more detail, and suddenly you've got all this knowledge, and you realise that actually that's what you're using. So. As an experienced speaker, you start reading, reading the audience, as we were saying beforehand. So ultimately, they are looking at the audience and adapting their speech, adapting their style to the audience as they, as they are speaking, rather than being, this is how I'm delivering it, this is what I've practised, and I'm just going to deliver it in this specific way. They also understand that actually they're delivering a, a bespoke speech for the audience, meaning what they have is they have a number of different stories, and the stories all relate to different messages, and what they're going to do is adapt which stories they use depending on the reactions they get from the audience. So again, it's going back to it being much more of a conversation than a set thing because they want the audience to take away stuff rather than it just being a one-way dialogue. And the last thing is everything in terms of their mannerisms, their stage mannerisms and how they act and how they're doing, they give confidence to the audience that they're in control of this. Because mm. I think one of, the, one of the things that fascinates me is when you're a speaker or you're, deli- or you're asked to deliver a speech, your main fear, and can you tell me if you haven't had this, and if you say you haven't, then I, I, I'll dispute you and tell you you're not telling the truth, is the fact you, you stand up on stage and your big fear is, oh, my God, they're going to hate me. Mm. And, and actually, I've got to do this because they're going to hate me. And I've got to be good. But the truth is, for any speaker, is the only per- people in the room who want you to succeed more than you are the audience. And why is that? Because especially kind of... If they're in the middle of the row, in the middle of, a, of an auditorium, there's no way out. So they've got to listen to you for the next 45 minutes, drivel on at them, and all they want you to do is be good. Please be good, because otherwise I can't escape you. Mm-hmm. So, and turning everything on its head to realising that, hold on, they're on my side rather than against me, suddenly means that you can relax into yourself and you can be yourself. And what's the key thing, what's the main thing in terms of your question, what about the professional speaker? is the fact they're giving themselves up to the audience rather than giving a story up to the audience or giving a speech up to the audience. I want, I want you in your entirety. Mm, interesting, that, like, that kind of vulnerability piece as well. Yeah, I mean, for many, like, I got into the business kind of having heard lots of speakers who stand up on stage, and I always, I always use the Olympian example. They'd show their gold medal and be like, you too can win the gold medal. And I'd sit there at the back of the room, and maybe this says a lot about me, I'd be like... I'm never going to win that gold medal. I'm A, I'm too lazy, and B, I'm definitely not good enough at the whole thing. And I'd switch off from it immediately. Mm. And, I, and, you know, so they, and not switch off completely because you go when you feel good about the whole stuff, but you wouldn't take anything away. Whereas you then hear that gold medalist stand up on stage and say, hey, listen, I've got my gold medal. You can all have your photo with the gold medal afterwards. I'm going to tell you what got me out of a bed on a wet, cold November morning when I hadn't seen my family for six weeks and my whole body ached and the Olympics wasn't for nine years. What made me actually keep on going? And they tell me that, and I think to myself as I go back to my desk, wherever my desk is, and go back to my spreadsheet and start doing stuff again. And it's like, if they can do that, I can do this. And they, they actually help and guide me through where I want to get to. Mm. And so the vulnerability of the speaker and turning it around away from it being, hey, this is all about me, to being, hold on, I'm going to tell you my story in all its rawness, and you're going to take... You, you're all going to have a good time because it's a fun story. It ends up with you being able to take a picture of the gold medal. But actually, I'm going to give you the fact, I'm going to give you what made me get out of bed on that wet cold November morning, and you will take that away when you, because we're all doing it, just in a different guise. Mm. And it's that piece about takeaways, isn't it? It's, again, it's thinking back to the audience. They don't want to just hear their story, your story. They want to hear how your story can impact their lives or help them or educate them in some way. So it's bringing that audience focus back. Absolutely. And the balance is going back to what, what's a great speaker is they're still telling it 
in a fun way because I want to I feel good at the moment. I want to be laugh. I want to cry. I want to smile. I want to have all those emotions. But then afterwards, for those audiences that want impact, they're taking more away from it. And the great, the great professional speakers, proper speakers, whatever you want to call proper speakers, that's terrible. The great good speakers will balance up the emotion of the story along with the fact that there's, there's takeaways which anyone can, can use and, to, and walk away with. Mm. Like emotion, but in a kind of a way that's held and kind of used in a way that's in a kind of... Way. In a positive way, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, with confidence with speaking, it's like so many people are so nervous about starting out with it. What are kind of your, some of your top tips for building confidence with public speaking? So I start in a place, and it's very um, trite, but to say, you've got this. Start in a place saying you've got this. If you, if it's your story, and I mean, and it, this kind of if you're giving a business speech and it's part of your whole thing, you still need to own that story. There's no point giving a presentation if you don't really believe what you're going to say. For those people who are telling their own story, it's much more it's much easier because it's your story anyway. So it's innately within you, and it's what you tell every night as you go to as you go to the pub. I'm not saying you go to the pub every night, but. Um, so that's the starting place. Is you you've got the speech. From that, you can turn around and say, well, hold on, this is my story. I don't need to learn it word for word because actually the same way that you and I are conversing now, how I tell this, if I told you, this, if I gave you the same message again in two minutes time, it will have different words and different structure. So let me map out how I'm going to begin it. Give me the first two words and that I can learn word for word because that will just give me the time to draw a breath and relax and know that I've got my intro and by the time I've gotten through my intro, I'm in the, I'm in the moment. I then know my key stories I'm going to give and then I get give myself confidence that I'm just telling my story and it doesn't really matter whether it is exactly the same as I've done did it in my rehearsal because actually the messages are still are going to come out at the end of the whole thing mm. and then I think kind of in terms of like the confidence bit and the kind of the nerves that come in before you start a speech just get a ro- routine for yourself so you're not spending the 10 20 minutes beforehand furiously reading your notes again and again because if you get to that stage you're in trouble anyway. You've got the speech. You know the speech. You don't need to be doing it in the 20-minute lead-up to you presenting, to, to you actually presenting the speech. Find, find a routine, which is kind of go to the toilet, I do my hair, I do this, I walk around the block once, which just takes you away from the moment because the more relaxed you are, the more you'll feel like you're having a conversation with the audience rather than a speech to them. Yeah, yeah. If you're like cramming your notes just before you go on stage, I feel like it's just setting yourself up because you're so scared of sticking to a script. Yes, I, I think it, scripts can be useful as like pointers, but also it can stress you out so much because you're like, I'm trying to follow it. Exactly. So, so, so I think kind of for those people who turn around and say, I need to write that script, I need to write it down, do it, but commit to yourself that 48 hours before before it, you literally rip it up and you have your cue cards with your key points on, but you ripped up that speech so you can't refer back to it again mm-hmm. because by that time you've got it in your head. Very interesting. I'm going to try that next time. <laughs> well, I, one of the things I think that's quite challenging with speaking is people always ask me for advice about, I do lots of event moderating mm. and, the, and and a bit of keynote as well, and they ask for advice on building confidence. And for me personally, the thing that's built my confidence is the experience of doing it because I've done it enough now that I know it's kind of roughly how it's going to go and I have the confidence to do it. But for people who haven't quite got opportunities yet to do the public speaking, I think maybe that can be a bit challenging because they need the experience of doing it a little bit to get used to it and to get confidence with doing it so I guess my question is if people want to get into speaking and they they haven't started to get opportunities how can they go and search them out okay so I, I, on a quick comment on that firstly is people should understand that every every time they stand up and if in a team meeting if they're delivering something it's still a speech and mm-hmm. so they should see that as a speech and if they want to get into it they should be using that and kind of 
using whatever process they've put in place in order to use that opportunity. In terms of actually proper speeches, there are so many clubs and bars which hold nights where you get to speak. Like it's kind of you hear about comedians and open night mics and how they all start out these open night mics in a pub and kind of it's full of drunk people and I keep mentioning drink today, uh, full of drunk people and it's kind of they they died on their bottoms etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But there there's similar sort of things for speakers and the truth is what you're actually saying is, am I willing to get myself out of my comfort zone? Am I willing to take the risk of understanding that the first few times I do it, it's not going to go successful, but it is a learning experience? Don't rush headlong into the fact that I'm only going to speak at an event which is in my sector, a high-profile event or anything like that, because you need to go through the pain to get there, because that's how you learn. So it doesn't matter whether you kind of... And all schools, for example, especially if, you kind of, if, you're, if you're in business and you maybe you started your own business, stuff like that, Business studies at A levels, you could write to you could phone up any school and say, "Hi, I'm an I'm an entrepreneur. I've got a business and it's been successful. Would you like me to come and speak to your students for half an hour?" And they'd be like, "Yeah," and they're chomping at the bit. Mm. Now, don't get me wrong. To me, the hardest audience in the entire world is kids because they will tell you exactly what they think. Mm. So, you, but as long as you're prepared to take that and you understand that you're there to learn and realistically you want to muck up and you want to muck up to the nth degree, then what have you got to lose? Mm. For those that need convincing who aren't speaking already, what are some of the benefits you think of building kind of a speaking career alongside your business or as part of your work? I feel like a stat record. But the bottom line is we are all speaking. We are all deli- like if you have a business meeting where you're pitching to a potential investor, where you're pinch- pitching to a, a supplier, when you're pitching to a client, you are delivering a speech. So ultimately the more experience you have of delivering it in an, in an environment which is out of your comfort zone, the more you can tailor yourself accordingly to actually something which is useful. Because you, you don't need a speaking career, but what you need to do is understand how to deliver your message in the best possible way. And listen, I'll talk about myself. I speak ten far too quickly. I know that. But actually, by doing speaking, it, it has consciously trained my mind to... Hopefully, in front of this microphone, I am slowing down my, my voice. Um, and I know that if I get excited, I still need to temper myself. And that's just because I've been practicing it. And therefore, it's, a, it's as much a mental exercise as it is kind of, I want this to be a career. But you've got to understand kind of, that we are all speaking every day. And all we're doing, kind of, when you say, let's talk about speaking, is you're putting a stigma above it, above when I speak on stage, it's different to when I'm sitting in a, in a team meeting and deliver a, um, whatever my update is of the week. Both of them are the same things, but just different, different yeah. environments. All it is is just a shift in audience size. Yeah, exactly. That's such a nice way of thinking about it. I haven't thought about it like that before, but it's true. And actually, if you can build your confidence in a team meeting, you can build it on stage as yeah. well. So I did a Q&A yesterday on my Instagram because I have quite a lot of people who get in touch with me wanting to get more speaking opportunities. And I did a, a, a questions box about um, kind of things that people were concerned about. And one of the things I kept getting asked about was about fees and knowing what to charge, how to kind of frame what you're charging, whether there's a benchmark. And I suppose if you're not represented by an agency and you are still at the stage where you're negotiating your own uh, fees for speaking, do you have any advice to share on that? OK, so... There's a few things to say about being paid for speaking. My, the starting place for me is to say this, is that if you, are, if you are standing up and being paid for speaking, then your brand, whether it's yourself or your company, 
is out there and you are going to be judged. And ultimately, we're no longer in an environment, in a, sorry, we're no longer in a world whereby that's a closed environment of just the people in the room. Because every single person in that room has a phone, they have, they're on social, whatever they are, and they are critiquing you kind of as you go along. So you have to be, you have to understand that and appreciate that. And it's a very different thing to when you're doing a free speech where people kind of have more appreciation of what you're doing and why you're putting yourself out there. And the expectation of your abilities as a speaker is far less. Mm. Um, in terms of then what you charge as a speaker, the answer to that is it's, n it's not about your talent as a speaker. And it's not necessarily about your, and it's not about your story or your brand. It's about the whole. So you can charge whatever you feel. The same way that if you're a consultant and you charge a day rate, how do you come up with that day rate? Because you benchmark yourself in an industry against people that you consider yourself equal as, at. And what's interesting to me is, like, how good is a speaker is not to kind of... You, when you look at names, you think of their names and actually the brands that are behind them. But actually, some of our best speakers don't have the high-profile brands. But what they do is they completely kind of entrance an audience. They take real takeaway out. So you've got to understand who are you, where you're positioned, and then you adjust your your fee accordingly to that. And then alongside that, you've got to understand what are you looking to do with the speech. Are you looking to be a speaker who speaks 300 times a year and is happy to fly around the world or just do or virtual around the world and stuff like that? But it's kind of it, turning a professional career and that's what you're doing. Are you looking for a speaker who actually doesn't have time, so is only looking to do one speech a year? Because scarcity is an amazing kind of fee barrier. So there's lots and lots of barriers to the whole thing. I think the, the one advice, and I, I, I appreciate I haven't given concrete advice, I'm going to give one bit of concrete advice, which is this. Whatever you set your fee at, stick to that fee. So even though you're offered, you might be offered a, a kind of a silly, a silly sum of money, which might be less than your usual fee to speak down the road from yourself on a Tuesday lunchtime when you've got nothing going on. If your fee, if you've set your fee at a particular level, n do not go below that. Because the same way that you, you wouldn't walk into a shop and buy a chocolate bar and say, oh, can I pay 10p less? This is my brand. This is what I'm representing. If you want me, you pay for it. If at that point I choose to do a speech for less, I say to you, do a speech for free because you're understanding the value that you're getting out of it. Because you might be doing it from a marketing perspective for you, yourself, a kind of a networking perspective for yourself, but you're understanding why you're doing it. But if you charge less than your usual fee just because of ease, you, what you're doing is you're devaluing the content that you're delivering, which is really what your speech is about mm. and the value that comes from it. Interesting. I also found during the pandemic, a lot of companies were quite cheeky with offering a lot lower fees for virtual stuff because they were like, well, we're not covering travel expenses. And actually, I find virtual hosting a lot harder because you don't have that in-person dynamic yep. and the energy. And so I'd spend more time prepping. So actually, it kind of came up out in the wash and I was realising there shouldn't be yeah. less budget for it, I don't think. I, I completely agree. Listen, and we, so we're, we're in a position, Speaker's Corner, we basically, we'd love to get a situation whereby, yes, we understand there's a difference in terms of time, your time. So maybe kind of 20% is the difference between your in-person fee and your virtual fee, but they're pretty similar because 100% from a speaker, a host perspective, you are much more exhausted from doing a virtual thing um, than you are in person because you've got the energy of the room. The other thing I would say, which is really interesting, is if at the beginning of the pandemic, clients were just happy as long as you were on your computer and you knew how to unmute yourself. It was like, they've achieved, well played. My expectation of speakers and the reason, kind of one of the justifications of increasing the fee is you are now delivering in a different medium. Yeah, that doesn't. That means your quality has to be at the same as an in person, which means that my expectation is the equipment you have delivers a professional speech. You are you kind of you are not going to freeze halfway through, because that's not what's expected. 
from professional speech. You talk about the energy from uh, kind of from your your speech and how you deliver that because it's all on you and no longer on the audience. Like there are simple tricks that speakers they should have two cameras. Why? Because if you have the ability, kind of, and maybe an, an operator, kind of an AV person who can help you to actually do it. Because by switching between two cameras during your speech, it's giving energy to the audience because they're seeing different viewpoints. And little tricks like that suddenly turn it into a. It's a TV-based production you're giving now. Mm. That's what I want from virtual. And if you start being able to deliver that to clients, then the differentiation of free goes down enormously because they're seeing the value you're delivering kind of along with they're getting the content. So it's no longer like, yes, but it's not about the travel. It's about the fact you're getting my content and you're getting it in this new medium. And I used a flip example of if I said to you, you've got to give a message to so-and-so about this, that, and the other. If you were doing it by phone, you'd do it in a completely different way to if you were writing an email. But it'd be the same message. That's how you've got to see virtual and in person. Is you're still delivering your content, but you're delivering it a different way. But the critical thing is you're delivering it in the right way for that medium and still the client or whoever's receiving the message is getting the message in the right way. Yeah, and still keeping it engaging and lively, which is, which uh, is the challenge. Yes. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This season of They Star Stick with Angelica Malin is proudly sponsored by Funderbean, a global investment and trading platform. Funderbean serves 25,000 investors from 133 countries and has over 60 companies from Europe and Asia listed on the Funderbean exchange. Funderbean's marketplace operates 24-7, 365 days a year and has helped private companies raise more than 25 million euros in funding. Funderbean is a female-founded business founded in 2013 by Kaidi Rousselep, a former CEO of Nasdaq Tallinn, who will be hearing from later on this series. If you'd like to explore the world of startups and growth companies, visit, visit their website www.funderbean.com and give them a follow on social media at Funderbean. Thank you to our sponsors, Funderbean. Are there any circumstances in which you think you should speak for free? Uh, absolutely. Firstly, I turn around and say there's all sorts of amazing, amazing um, charities, causes, whatever you want, that you feel passionate about and you want to dedicate your, your time to it. I think kind of... You get, there's a lot of requests for this. I think kind of I, I always advise speakers understand who you would like to be speaking free for, free for who you have, who kind of what causes you'd like to be involved in. Giving your time up for that is an amazing thing. That's from a outward perspective. From your own perspective, depending on who you are and why you're doing this, there's obviously a brand building marketing exercise, whether it's for yourself or for your company. If you're doing it for that and you're standing up on stage because you think there's opportunities. 100% you're speaking free because actually you can extrapolate out from that what value you're getting out of the whole thing. Again, when I talk about good causes, whether it's schools, whether it's charities, whatever it is, that's what that's when you should speak for free, mm. is when, you, when you're doing it for the right reasons. The wrong reasons are you're speaking for free because a friend has asked you to do a favour um, or because you feel guilty. If you feel guilty about something, that's not a reason to do it. If, if they're trying to guilt trip you into doing something for free, ultimately... 
there's no harm in asking yourself the question, what are they getting out of this? And if they are getting more out of it and you're not getting anything out of it, then where does the balance lie? You are... I, work, I live in a world whereby the speakers are their brands and their brands are their companies. And actually, you, if you devalue that, then ultimately it's your job. And how are you going to how are you going to get paid? Mm. And it is yeah, it is about valuing yourself and also valuing your expertise, not just your time and like charging it's, on expertise. It's the hardest thing in the world. I, I always thought it's kind of I, I generally always thought it was an English, a British thing over the fact of we're very kind of coy about ourselves and actually to quote money for speaking is like ridiculous. And I should, we should. Do it for you. And then I went to America, obviously kind of very maybe brash kind of and more outward. And they have the same pro- they have the same problems. You go around the world and you meet speakers and they all have the same problems. And fundamentally, to turn around and say, I want a sum of money to be doing this for 45 minutes for an hour. It's kind of quite hard. It's kind of it's humbling or whatever. So you have to have that level of arrogance of understanding of almost kind of elevating your brand and who you are, even though it's you above who you are in everyday life and separating out the two. How do you ask for those fees with confidence? Because I, I worked with a speaking coach earlier in the year and we were looking together at responding to a few inquiries I'd had. And when she looked at the kind of emails I was sending, she was like, why are you apologising so much? I was apologising about the fee before they'd even told me what the budget was, etc. And I didn't, I, I don't think I'd realised how much I was kind of preempting what I was asking for being a problem, even though I knew it was like something that was fair for for where I was at. Um, so, do you have any advice on how you can kind of come into those conversations with confidence? Okay, so the, the glib answer to that is that's kind of one of the reasons that Speakers Corner and other companies like us exist is because that third party is much more dis- dispassionate about this is the fee, take it or leave it, mm. kind of, yes, kind of, we can talk about it. And if, and if and if you can't afford it, that's fine, we can talk about someone else or whatever it was. So that's the glib answer and obviously it gives me a chance to say speaker's corner. Um, the, the slightly more nuanced answer is there's a great scene in one of, kind of, Alan Partridge, one of the early series, where he looks in the mirror and goes, you're a tiger and growls at himself and things like that. And that's basically what it is. It's it kind of, it's just... It's putting yourself in a place where I'm going to be arrogant. I'm going to have self-confidence. I'm going to say it and I'm going to stop. And kind of just touching on my career in terms of in business for a minute, one of the biggest lessons that I ever learned, um, and it's from a procurement guy when I worked for a big company, and he said to me, the kind of the, he was a very successful procurement guy. I, said, I asked him what his secret was or whatever it was, and he was like, silence. I said, what do you mean? He said, I am bloody good at sitting in a room saying something and then not saying a word while this person stares at me to wait. And I think that's, it's like, if this is your fee, you then don't apologise about the fee. You then don't, when they don't answer, kind of immediately drop your fee 10 minutes later because kind of they haven't said anything. It's like, this is my fee. The ball's in your court. Mm. Do yeah. do I mean, and, and therefore, kind of, you start saying to yourself, is it easier to have those conversations by email because then you don't feel the need to apologize? Kind of, you can really look at the write the email, re, read it back three minutes later, realize you've apologized, and rewrite the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But you don't have that immediate response. But it's the confidence in terms of when you quote that fee, you then don't. What other profession is there where the, where you get quoted a fee and suddenly they turn around to you five minutes later and say, oh, actually, I'll do it a bit cheaper for you? Yeah, you wouldn't expect that from a plumber. No. It's like, this is my charge as well. This is what it is. Mm. I, I love that idea of sitting in discomfort. I think so often we, we want a comfortable life. And I, I think sometimes when you send off these things, you should feel a little like, you should feel like, oh, that's like, you're asking for a lot, but that's like what you're worth. But it maybe sh- it should slightly excite you. And like, I know some things that have come off of me this year and I'm like, oh, the, the, the buzz of it. Yes. Because I did hold a little bit and I did sit in that discomfort for a while. I, I, I think 
we're talking about feeds, I think, and that discomfort of, of the whole thing. And it's exactly the same as those moments before you get on stage. It's like reveling those nerves, reveling that experience, because actually that's, that's what makes it all exciting. So the fact that I've quoted some silly fee where it's like, how is anyone going to pay that? And then I sit there and don't panic about it. And then they do pay it. And I'm like, yeah, the greatest thing ever. It's the same thing as that moment before you're on stage where it's like, this is all going to go wrong. And you suddenly say to yourself, no, that's good. because It builds up adrenaline and it builds up um, dopamine and all these other stuff. And it means that you go on stage and you deliver the best speech of your life. Whereas actually, if you don't have that, you end up complacent and you end up mucking up because you just you yeah. just deliver without any emotion. Yeah, and we think that fear is telling us kind of not to do something, and it's like, you need the fear. Yes. You need that, that uh, boost. I get kind of a story I've told a few times is I, um, I very early on in my career, I was with an uh, Olympian for two, two speeches in a week, and the first time, he was a very successful Olympian, and um, the first time I was with him backstage, and literally about two more minutes before he went on, he ran to the toilet and was sick and... Um, then came back and delivered a great speech. I was like, fair enough, maybe, whatever. And the second time, like a few days later, I was with him for another speech and he did exactly the same thing. <sighs> maybe the brashness of youth or whatever it was, I turned to him off and said, I don't understand. Listen, I, I don't know what you're worth, but I, the figures that you've seen in the paper, I've seen in the papers previously about your sponsorship deals and stuff like that, you don't need to be speaking. Why do you do this if you are kind of sick with nerves beforehand? And he said, you don't understand it. The feeling I have is... The same sort is the closest I get to the feeling I had when I was in the Olympics, in the Olympics, going for that gold medal. It's what keeps me alive. The fact that it manifests itself in this whole thing. If I wasn't feeling that, I'd be more worried about going on stage. And 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 that's what he. And that's actually why he did it. He didn't do it for the money. He did it because of the fact he wanted to bring alive those feelings of nerves, because actually he could translate that into adrenaline. Mm. And I think if we if we mere mortals who aren't Olympians or whatever we want to call ourselves can actually take that and understand that nerves are not a bad thing. And actually the discomfort of sitting in silence is not a bad thing. It actually is the part of the job that you should most enjoy. You're suddenly switching around into everything about yourself. Yeah. Because you have an inner confidence that either you're going to deliver a great speech or you are worth every penny you've quoted. And that's, again, going back to Alan Partridge, that's you just turning around to yourself and saying, I'm worth it, I'm worth it, I'm worth it. And drilling that into yourself rather than turning around and saying, oh my God, I better apologise for this. Mm. And that the process is worth it, like that day of nerves and the anxiety around it for that feeling that you get afterwards and that feeling of capability as well. Like, I never feel more alive than after coming off stage doing something because you've challenged yourself and then you've, it's so enjoyable in the moment. And I think it's worth those that process of fear sometimes. Absolutely. And I, I kind of... Young kids, kind of, they're the first one to rush, rush up at the front of class when they have show and tell. They're the first one to tell their stories. They're the first ones to appear in the school play and stuff like that. Because all the bad parts of speaking and all the fear and everything like that, which as you get older, you suddenly get more and more petrified of. They don't have. They want the adrenaline doing the whole thing. And so almost returning to your inner charge is really what you're trying to get to, which is, I'm just going to enjoy this. Mm. And I'm going to enjoy the buzz of the whole thing mm. because you can't, where else am I going to get it? Yeah, and having that kind of playful attitude, I think, yeah. is, is so impactful. I'd love to touch a little bit on business leadership because obviously, coming off the back of two uh, very difficult years and so many changes and with the pandemic, talk to me a bit about what it was like leading your business through that time. So, I mean, obviously, we are in the live events industry, and the pandemic hit, and the live events industry went went full stop. Um, and you have to kind of. It was interesting, the week before when everyone knew we were going into lockdown, like, now I'm going to paint myself as a kind of, 
I'm I wouldn't say I'm a miserable sod, but I'm a miserable person to my kind of to my team. I always want us to strive to do better, and like I kind of I'm like, what can we do more? What, what can we do? Um, and my head of finance, and like the week up to lockdown, as kind of we were starting to see events being cancelled left, right, and centre, turned to me one morning. She said, "I've never seen you so happy." Why are you smiling now the whole time? You're unnerving me. And I was like, and I thought about it. I was like, the thing is, at that moment in time is all our concept of control and all our concept about if we do things differently, then we'll be okay was taken out of our hands. The pandemic was something which hit everyone, different levels, but it hit everyone. And it was something we couldn't control at all. So it was like, at least if I, I've really felt it in the first stage, if it all goes wrong and, it, and we go under, it's not because of anything we've done. And that was like a massive weight off my mind. Um, and so that almost inspired us to be like, okay, what can we be doing? Like, what can we be doing differently? And I think we were, again, bringing up speakers, we were one of the first to just try stuff. So we set up a studio in our office so we could try virtual stuff. We did the first comedy showcase in the industry and speaker showcase and all this other stuff where we were like, we don't know if it's going to work. All these speakers who we've got great relationships with and built up relationships with every year are willing to take a punt on us and do stuff even though we can't guarantee them that anything's going to come off it because they understand we need to change. And so that feeling of let's try stuff was just, a, it was immensely, um, what's the word, the kind of, it was immense feeling of peace, I suppose, for want of a better, but it's like, and, so, and that's where we went with the whole thing. We then got on to kind of, the joy of the joy kind of what we do with employees we've got no money coming etc etc and you deal with that and again we had open transparency and i talked to them they knew everything that was going on during that time i opened up basically the figures of everything to them and everything like that there was nothing hidden so when unfortunately we had to make redundancies except it was like they almost said to it to our, they thanked us because they knew it was coming and we made it at the right time there were still opportunities in other industries to get jobs because we did it early enough that we were like we're not going to keep we want you to go out and get stuff and we supported them as best as I can and I think that the most one of the most rewarding moments was when we had to make a weird we made redundancies and they thanked us for making because they like you've handled it immaculately through the whole thing um, and then we sat down as a kind of uh, at the board level and we would turn around and say are we going to rebuild this or are we going to be the company we are now, which is a small company, and try along quite nicely, and kind of not go again hard. And we're like, no, we enjoy the we enjoy the adventure. And so, again, by making the decision to go go and build, rebuild, and go strong at the whole thing, almost we've been released, and we were just willing to try stuff, and we're willing to kind of invest in our marketing, invest in what we thought the industry was going to become. So we were talking kind of. We were talking. I mentioned before about how we moved from a place of just being able to press unmute to actually looking for speakers to deliver something spectacular virtually. Is we were published, we were talking about that far far beyond anyone else. We were talking about what the what, when clients started coming back to us about in person events and talking about having speakers. We were very open to them about the fact that if you are doing this, these are the sort of things you need to think about. Because going back to their audience, how do people feel about going along to virtual event to sorry to in person events? Are they ready yet to mix with people? just because you think it's ready or just because you've been told by the government that doesn't take away from our emotions so let's talk about it and I think the last part was the last thing to say about the story was we also challenged our speakers far more we talked, we've talked. we talked a lot about how they have to be more vulnerable and actually I think the great thing about the pandemic was we could turn around to them and say you have to be more vulnerable you have to open up and you have to be talking about how you're experiencing stuff day to day because that's what everyone else is experiencing and so I took joy 
and again, I'm not sure that's the right word, but to join the fact that speakers became more open to the clients. So actually clients were taking more away um, from the speakers themselves, which meant that we were building back an industry, let alone building back Speakers Corner, whereby clients were looking for more from speakers and therefore challenging us and our product who happened to be speakers to deliver more to them, um, which to me meant the industry could be built up in a better way. It sounds like it gave you, the pandemic gave you quite a lot of freedom to suddenly experiment with things in a way like it gave you a, a bit of creative license, perhaps. I, I, I completely agree. I think kind of, again, when it, gets, when it gets taken away from you, the fact that you're, you're in control, suddenly it's like, if I'm no longer in control, everything that we've previously done, who knows whether it'll work again, therefore everything is up for grabs. So let's try stuff. And if it doesn't work out, are we any worse off than we are now? Not really, so we might as well give it a go. So, so we had, we tried stuff and the critical thing we did, which I think is really important learning for us, is we tried stuff and we got as good at stopping it as we did at starting new stuff. So we didn't try and, and I think this is what happens as you mature as a business, you start stuff and you become more risky, you become more risk averse in the planning of starting stuff, which means it's more difficult to stop it if it's not going to plan because we're like, we've already invested so many man hours in this whole thing, we better not stop it. Whereas actually if it's like, let's give this a go, and if it doesn't start, we'll stop it tomorrow. It means you can just try stuff and have some fun and hope that it works. And if it doesn't work, nothing's really lost. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it definitely was a weight of, I think, that decision to turn around and say, we are going to go again, which was a long conversation. It was a time that we were, we were unfortunately having to lay off staff and stuff like that. To be turning around at that point, have the emotion of laying off staff, but yet going, we are going to rebuild, meant that it opened up the license to breathe and just enjoy. And maybe kind of when you are in a business and the business is growing, it's been successful, you keep on going, but you lose the enjoyment a bit mm. um, because you realise you've got a lot of people who are dependent on you. You've got a lot of people who want kind of, who are dependent on you to earn their money and, kind of, and they've got all sorts of other things. And actually, therefore, to make a change which could impact their lives is not just impacting yours. Whereas actually, when you're when you're that two-person company starting up, if you screw up, it's only you who's going to be impacted. Yeah, so it's kind of bringing it back to that startup feel. Uh, it was it was a startup. It was a startup mentality with everything. Um, and what's interesting, though, kind of what what a really interesting time was around September October last year before Omnicrom hit, um, and we started to see the return of live in-person events, uh, and the virtual was still going really well. Um, and I was pushed by my team about the fact that we need to move out of that startup mentality back into, or I needed to move out of my, they could still be in the startup mentality, but I needed to move to more strategic thinking because otherwise we weren't going to push on. And we had to kind of, we had to turn around and say, we kind of, if it takes however long it takes for a startup move to a slightly more mature company, that was decompressed into f into months or even weeks, and we had to and I had to be leading from that perspective. Mm. Do you think not to bring my coaching background too much into this, but it sounds to me a little bit like you perhaps maybe not so much bored, but you'd become a little you'd been in the industry for a while. It had looked the same for a long time, and perhaps like the pandemic happening, all these changes happening, it suddenly things were exciting because they were things were changing. <laughs> you. Uh, touch wood, whatever you want to call it. When you have a successful company, yeah, you don't want kind of you're you're reveling in the success, but you forgot, or I forgot, no, I didn't forget. I lost sight of why I started the band play. Why I went, mm. I wasn't. I had a couple of 
dot-com companies in the first boom. I then went to work for a big company because I realized I was just making stuff up again. And then I got into this company. And the reason I got into it for, was I, I started this company. Why did I start it? For two reasons. One, because we saw an ind- we saw an industry that we could change and grow. Not a, not a company, an industry that we could change and grow. And secondly, I wanted to be with people who I could just have fun with. Because I firmly always believed that actually I wish I was more driven in terms of money orientation or anything like that. I'm not. I want to have fun. I always I'm so skeptical when you when entrepreneurs talk about the fact what's the exit strategy and where are you going? Because I think anyone who goes in building a business and the aim is to make money, I don't think that's a good enough reason to go into a yeah. business. So yes, you're right. I was bored but I was bored I privileged the fact that I was bored because the company was successful and doing okay. And mm-hmm. kind of I, I had this joke with, with one of my team who just returned from a holiday and he was said to me and this was a few weeks ago. He said to me, I don't understand. Kind of, I came out and like the night before I came in, I felt sick. And I don't understand why I felt sick or anything. Like a bit nauseous. Why did I feel that? I said, I reckon it's two things. Because you can't quite work out. Quite, a member of my management team, I said, the problem you've got right now is you can't work out whether you want the business to have done really well, but then you have the fear because they've done really well that you're, you're completely relevant, Or you want the business to have screwed up completely so then you come back in and say, I'm here to save you all. And, and and you lose sight of actually the and I say this kind of to my again to my management team, I say the aim of a great manager, which I think often we lose, is to to basically have everyone in place so you are doing nothing. Mm-hmm. As a good manager, effectively, as a great manager, the aim is to do nothing because everyone else is doing everything. And actually, but that's great, and that's a great vision. Apart from then when you're doing nothing, you've you, you spend your entire time doubting yourself because you're like, why am I doing anything? And I think that's a really difficult thing to, to keep hold of. Um, so you like crises because you're like, I'm back involved. I'm here to rescue you and let's save the day. So yeah. how you reinvent yourself, and the pandemic is the most extreme and probably will be one of the most extreme examples of how to reinvent yourself ever. But it gives, gave a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of talk about purpose at the beginning. But I do think as your company grows and as you get bigger and as, kind of, and as you get the right structure in place that people are being amazing and doing amazing stuff, you have to find stuff which actually still brings a smile to your face every day when you wake up and makes you excited to go to work rather than just doing it because, hey, we want to grow the business more. No, I want to challenge. I want to do things differently. I want to, I want, I want to get those nerves. The same nerves that speak out before they go on stage. I want those nerves about the business. Yeah, and thinking about purpose and fulfilment more. I think the yeah. longer you do something, you can just get stuck in the everyday and you feel like, what, coming back to why are you doing this? What do you want to feel? I think it's so important. So now we're coming out of the pandemic, we hope. I keep saying this. Like, yeah, I know. Nervous. I'm like, How do you word this? I don't know. We're sort of, I, I don't say post, but I, you know, we're, we're sort of in a slight post era. Um, now we're coming out of it. What what do you predict for kind of the, the future of the events industry to look like? How how are you going up with the business for what you think perhaps the next twelve months will look like events wise? So I so I think that's okay. So the first thing to say is almost to reiterate what I've said beforehand: virtual and in, and in person events, both sectors or whatever you want to call them, are not going away. They're maturing, and there's an understanding in the marketplace that they serve different purposes. You can, the great thing about a virtual event is you can put it on overnight, you can reach people from all around the world, and the only cost you have is the equipment, which is minimal these days because Zoom is very good or Teams is very good, whatever you're going to use, and the speaker or whatever you're doing. So in this, in this fast-changing world where kind of who knows what's going on with the economy, who knows what's going on with the geopolitical situation or anything like that, you might, especially for those multinationals, you might need to disseminate information out quickly. You can do that now really easily. So the virtual is there for one reason. The in-person, 
I always used to say because it's my because it's my business, um, it's the sector that I'm in. That it's all about the content at these events. The content is everything, and it doesn't matter about anything else. Maybe I was doing a little disservice because you, you come to realise coming out of a pandemic, actually, it's not about the content. The content it b- brings everyone together, but the critical part of it is the drink in the bar after, is the networking, is a chance to spend time with each other to be creative. And maybe the job of the speaker or the content is to give you baseline things which you can be talking about. And so I'm really, I'm being really bullish about the events industry in terms of it's going to come out getting bigger and bigger and bigger as we value as individuals each other and we value kind of we value in as e, as individuals each other and spending time with each other for those in-person events and we won't want to get rid of them and in fact we might want more and more and at the same time we understand the joy of virtual where we can get the information from one place really really quickly and potentially and not taking up too much of our time so we can get it in between and clients who kind of who are involved in not not who are involved that's the wrong word clients who are conscious about kind of hosting these events they can they can disseminate it to their employees or people or clients from around the world overnight um so it's it's an it's a really exciting time for the events industry and my biggest fear God, i know you didn't ask me but i'll tell you it about the events industry is we almost forget what we've learned over the last two two and a half years and we slip back into where we were beforehand because we should see this as a learning, we should see this as going forward and see this as an opportunity that actually the industry can change for the better and can grow in a better way, which actually delivers to our clients, as in whether it's the audience, whether it's the event organiser, whether it's the C-suite of the, of the companies, more than they think they want. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting how the crisis of it all just pushed companies and, and industries in directions that would have taken so many years to get to it's the same with remote working companies that said yeah. you cannot work from home all of a sudden overnight their policies they had to they had figured it out and in the same way we've kind of jumped into virtual and we've worked out how to make those events really exciting and it would have taken so long to get that, there but i think that's i think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head none of this stuff that we're going through at the moment we wouldn't have got to mm. but it's been fast track totally accelerated yeah, yeah. and therefore embrace that and embrace kind of as a company i suppose as companies embrace that and therefore embrace if you see other changes that are going to come on the horizon don't be fearful about bringing that forward don't rely on the pan- on another pandemic to come along to turn around to USA to do it just go on and do it what's the worst that could happen absolutely so um on every episode we always do a quick fire round with our guests so um ready set go sweet or savory savory uh gin or tequila tequila yeah, there was there's doubt there so I, I'm not a big gin fan. So tequila, but tequila last experience was tequila ended up with a f- friend of mine on top of someone else's car dancing. So I'm just <laughs> a bit scared about the impact of tequila. A bit hesitant. Yeah. Uh, New York or London? London. I'm a London boy. <laughs> Speaking or listening? Listening. It's a harder skill. It's true. It is. Spend or save. I'd love to say spend, but I fear as I get older, I've turned into this saver. <laughs> Saving man. Uh, downtime or a night out? Night out. Uh, yeah, I've got kids and other bits, so kind of the concept of nights out are rare and fun. Very exciting to you. Uh, books or podcasts? Books. Love books. What's the best book you've ever read? Oh, jeez. What's the best <laughs> book I ever read? Well, and it might be because time is um, a, a kind of time tense at all goggles, but um, 
I was talking to someone and reminiscing massively in, in my youth. There was a book called Sophie's World by Someone Someone Flow, where it was a, it was a story about a young girl and it referenced all sorts of kind of philosophers and it gave me kind of background to, to philosophy. And I was looking up on Amazon. It doesn't. I don't think it's in print anymore. But it, <laughs> honestly, if you if you, I really want to read it again because I want to know whether it's as good as my memory <laughs> says it is. You want to dust it off? Yeah. Okay. Well, Nick, thank you so much. You've been the most wonderful guest. Just to finish the show, I'd love to ask you if you were to give three kind of bits of advice that you've learned through your career of things that you perhaps could go back and tell yourself, what would they be? So my favourite bit of advice is be honest. If you're in a meeting room and you have no in a meeting you have no idea what they're, they're talking about because they're using three letter, letter acronyms and stuff like that, turn around and be honest and say, sorry, can you explain that to me? I have no idea what you're talking about. Because you'll find that actually 90% of the people in that room agree with you. Um, and that p- ability to be brave is absolutely critical to success. Secondly, I'd turn around and say, and again, and you, you hear it a lot, but surround yourself with people smarter than you and people who are going to challenge you because whether that's in order to grow the business or whether actually it's to keep that smile on your face kind of, and kind of, I'm, I'm naturally, I love, I love the debate. That's what you want from life. And thirdly, critical thinking is a really interesting concept in the sense of when you, are, when you have an idea, don't just look at it from your viewpoint. Look at it from the viewpoint of the people that you're going to, you're, you're going to be talking to about it. Because if you go into that conversation with an idea as to how they're going to feel about it, then you're already one or two steps ahead of them. And A, you'll come across much better, but B, more importantly, it'll give you a chance to critically think any, through any ideas or suggestions that you come up with before kind of you go out there with them. Perfect. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much for your time. It's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of They Starst It with Angelica Malin. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button to get new episodes delivered weekly and follow us on social media at Jelly Malin. If you benefited from this conversation, we'd love you to leave a review and rate the podcast so more people can find it. Today's podcast is brought to you live from Runway East, who are kindly sponsoring this series of They Star Stick with Angelica Malin. I'm recording today at their state-of-the-art studio on Old Compton Street in Soho, and honestly, what an incredible place. As well as podcast studios, Runway East offers office solutions to businesses of all kinds. They do flexible contracts, and there's workspace options for everyone, from big branded offices to flexi co-working space. If you're interested in joining a super trendy co-working space, they've got sites in London and Bristol, with new ones opening later this year in Shoreditch and Whitechapel. Come here for Cake Wednesdays and Drinks Trolleys on Fridays, and stay for the free coffee. Give them a follow on social media at Runway East. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.